I'm channeling my inner old school floor trader for this one because it's uh, six in the morning on a Saturday and my buddy Jack Burgeon and I decided we want to do this shit early on a Saturday and get it over with so that we got the rest of the day to ourselves. So we're starting nice and early this morning. Happy you are with us. It is October 10th, 2020. Welcome to the QTR podcast. Hello. Nice to have you here. First and foremost, I want to shout out some of the people that make this podcast possible. I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast. Then we are going to get started well on our merry way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my friends over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is a brand new day trading community that has now actually been around for a year or so. Actually, more than a year. They just celebrated their one-year anniversary. Run by my dear friend Pete Hedgetus. Pete started the trader's path because he wanted to do something different. Folks, he was tired of the investment communities that front run you, that tell you they have, you know, million dollar strategies when they don't, and just the general bullshit. So he said, I'm going to start a day trading community that's all inclusive, where we actually take care of our members, where we get to know each other, where the vibe is good and relaxed. He does a daily live stream. He does daily watch lists. So if you're looking for a group to bat around ideas with, especially if you're a day trader, uh, it's great to become a part of a community. They trade red markets, green markets. Pete is an honest guy to do business with, a nice person. You can look him up. He's at PLH Stock on Twitter. And you can also check out the Trader's Path. The link is in my podcast description. Reach out to Pete. Tell him QTR said you want a free trial. He will make sure that you get taken care of, but a great community. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends over at Masterworks. Masterworks is a service that I use because I'm broke as fuck to get access to priceless works of art. How the hell would you get invested in the alternative art market otherwise? It would be impossible, right? You're not going to be going out and buying a $100 million Da Vinci or even a $1 million Banksy. Masterworks.io is an SEC registered company that allows you to get access to the alternative art market by securitizing these priceless works of art and very famous paintings and it then allows you to buy shares in them. They also have a secondary platform too that I just saw they're launching on their website that is going to allow people to trade shares in artwork. It's an incredible idea. And if you ever thought about getting access to the alternative art market, which is you know really considered to be, I guess, one of the leading alternative investment markets uh, out there, this is a really unique way to do it. I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, I'm happy that they're supporting the podcast, obviously, but I also wanted to give the platform a play, and uh, I love it. I like the way that the website's laid out. Um, it's very easy to understand. I have zero background in art, and as a matter of fact, I did a podcast with CEO Scott Lynn a couple months ago, which you can check out also too, which explains further what they do. Um, so if you Go to masterworks.io, that link is in the podcast description, and you put in code QTR, you'll skip the 15,000 person wait list. That's right, folks, I get past the velvet ropes when I go to the club, only when I'm with Lucci, actually. But uh, check out masterworks.io, and make sure to check out their disclaimer, some important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Speaking of Lucci, this podcast continues to be supported by my dear friend Sang Lucci, over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have been longtime supporters of the podcast, along with their homeboy, Charlie Bathgate. I have had them on the podcast before. Some of my favorite people 
to be around in the industry and people that I consider friends of mine. Lucci has the steam room, which was the original, okay, way to track flow heading into the illiquid options market, which can be a very valuable tool because many times it will tell you where the underlying equities will move. It will telegraph moves in the equities market. And if you can get ahead of the steam, you can get ahead of the big boys coming in with the big bucks. Sometimes you can make some money. The steam room is the way to do it. These guys were tracking unusual options activity before it was even a thing. A decade ago, these guys were doing it before every other service in the world was doing it. Now, Lucci's got a 10-year head start on the rest of the industry, and the steam room does things that other services can't even imagine doing. As a matter of fact, Charlie Bathgate was telling me recently that they have updated their software. It is a aesthetically beautiful platform to use. Uh, if you are a day trader, you like tracking momentum, especially if you mess with options, especially the steam room could be an invaluable tool to add to your arsenal. The link to that's in the podcast description. And like with all of my patrons, you can always just tell them QTR sent you and you want a discount and you want a free trial and they will make sure that you get it. Lucci, especially he is a buddy of mine. He'll make sure that you get squared up. He also offers the three LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven figure trader and the Sang Lucci Master Course, which is a financial education from a guy that's not going to talk to you like an asshole. How do you like that? All the links to those are in my podcast description. You can check those out. This podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver provider at JM Bullion. I just ordered some nice little one ounce silver bullion uh, bricks from JM Bullion last week. I said I had made an order. They turned around my order and delivered that shit in like four days. They did an awesome job. They have had a great selection of inventory, even as prices of gold and silver have skyrocketed. And that's probably why JM Bullion has done over $3 billion in business over the last decade. If you're a QTR podcast listener, you have your own JM Bullion sales rep that will help you. So if you don't feel comfortable navigating a website or you want personalized attention, you have questions, just email Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y at jmbullion.com and Kathy will make sure that you get taken care of. A link to JM Bullion is also in my podcast description. If you want to check out, it is a special link for QTR podcast listeners only. How do you like that? This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends at Corvus Gold. Traders for a Cause, my favorite charity. Ken R., Chris B., Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my homeboy Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, some of my newest patrons. The Grid just checked in a couple hours ago. Thank you. My friend Carell, Marcos M., Matthew Stillwell, appreciate you, brother. Brett, Andrew Mitchell, Eric Reynolds, Jim Durkin, and Scott Hagedone. Thank you so much. I want to shout out my buddy Raymond Carota next door in Bluebell, PA. What's going on? Corey Matthews, George Baker, Roy Zimmerman. Pawnbroker.com is in the house. And some of my older patrons, people that have been with me for a minute, Clay Kelly and David J. Mick, I can't see the rest of your name, so we'll just say David J. How do you like that one? How about my friends over at the Flow Algo? What's going on? Pivotal Capital still with me and Vinny Scarcella still in the house. I wonder, are you not related to Arielle Scarcella, are you? The chick on uh, YouTube? God, she is a good-looking woman. All right. Two rules for this podcast. First and foremost, this is not life advice, investment advice, trading advice, or advice of any nature. This podcast is routinely rated one star, which means that the quality of the information is not good. So do your research elsewhere and keep that in mind. 
And if you do follow what we say in this podcast, be prepared to endure the consequences, which is going to be a life full of misery, famine, plague, and pestilence. Thank you. Also, this podcast has a three-drink minimum, formerly a two-drink minimum, and soon to be a four-drink minimum, but we got a couple years for that. I think in honor of two years in, we got to go for three drinks. Given inflation, man, I'm stoked about today's interview. All right, I have with me today on the line... Jack Barugin, I have his official bio here, but I want to I want to inform the world of how I learned who the hell Jack Barugin was. There was a documentary on PBS. I don't know, back in like the 90s or the early 2000s that somebody had uploaded to YouTube a decade or two decades ago. Uh, and it was called Open Outcry and it went down to the Merc and followed the open outcry pits back when they were a thing. So it must have been the late 90s, I think. And uh, I had finished just watching a a documentary called Floored Into the Pit, which was another uh, open outcry video where, you know, you're watching all these psychotic open outcry traders just going nuts, and I was just fascinated by it. And this PBS documentary came up in, you know, my recommended videos, which was a little bit more of a a sober uh, documentary of what, what went on down in the pits and throughout the hour uh there was always one guy that stood out to me and i would go back and i would replay this part of the documentary because i fucking loved it there was this guy (laughs) that was on this phone i don't think you weren't a clerk at the time were you jack no i was i was i was doing the trade i was actually on you're doing the arbitrage you had the, the the green jacket on right And this dude was just fucking screaming like a psychopath. And I was like, this guy is my favorite person in the entire documentary. And and somebody commented to me when I put that up, I don't know, maybe like a year ago or six months ago. They're like, oh, that's Jack Perugin. Like, he's still on CNBC all the time, whatever. And I was like, holy shit. So then I found you on Twitter. and, And last week... You celebrated your wedding anniversary, so I sent you a little shout out on Twitter. I said, like, "Hey, here's the guy from the documentary that I like, you know." And here you are on the podcast, man. It's amazing how things work. Hey, Chris, I, I got to tell you that 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 clip has probably been seen more times between my kids, my kids' friends, and everybody else. But uh, but by the way, thank you for the shout out for my anniversary. I do appreciate that. Oh, dude, I'm so. This is like. This is very cool about having a podcast. You just get to bring on people that you find interesting. And, uh, you know, I had no clue who the hell you were, whether you're still around or not. <laughs> well, let me, let me tell you about that five. Only because people say, you know, it was only a five lot. Why did you get so crazy? Back then, we were trading 100 points wide in the NASDAQ. Each arbitrage <laughs> Each each arbitrage we did was worth fifty thousand dollars. So now I am on the phone with our guys out in New York, and I've already given them the fill. I said go. So now they've already gone in the cash. I need those futures. Right, All right, right. So I'm looking at this guy, and I'm watching the futures being offered through my price, and I'm going, where are you looking? That's why I was losing my shit is because I was already given the fill. I was already given – I mean we were already in the cash. I'm already in the trade. And remember, <laughs> arbitrage is doing something at the same time in two different markets. It's not It's not lagging. You know what I mean? That's right. really uh, – but, but anyway, so that, that's really what that trade – up oh, that lose you? grand there at that point. Okay. Yeah, explain to my listeners what the hell is going on there. So the clip is, and I put the clip, I put two links in the podcast description. 
One says, here's my favorite clip of Jack, which goes right to that point in the uh, video. So you can see Jack in action. And, uh, and then the second clip is the full documentary. But the clip is basically Jack, and he's on the phone. And I don't know what you're asking for, but you're, you're screaming, 40 even on 5. And then yeah, I guess the guy's not paying attention to you. Because then you just start flipping out. You're like, "What the fuck is this guy looking at?" So what the hell is happening? Well, he was, there? he was staring. He's staring right at me. I'm looking at the clerk. The clerk is looking at me. He <laughs> knows I'm in the middle of a trade. All right. Now all of a sudden he's daydreaming. I see a big order come in to offer right through my price, and I'm waiting for my fill. But the, but the clerk is just daydreaming. So I <laughs> I immediately and and but it looks like he's staring at me. So I immediately gave it to somebody else, and the other right. guy gave the fill right away. And that's when the broker turned around and said, what are you doing? Why are you giving the business away? And I was, that's when I'm yelling, where the fuck is this guy looking? <laughs> right? Because I didn't know where the hell he was looking. I thought he was staring right at me and I'm waiting for my fill. But that when, when you're dealing with money and I think when you're talking to people on the floor, you get passionate, especially when you're dealing with large <laughs> trades. All right. You know, and, and especially when it's it's your money, too. It's, you know, you're you're involved. So, uh, you know, everything goes out the window. Manners go out the window. Uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, I've, I've gotten on a desk. I literally have gotten on my desk. I'm 5'5". Five five, all right. People can barely see me. I used to have a little stand. Me and Jimmy Urio are, are, are two of the shortest guys you'll ever see from the CME. And Santelli, by the way. You know, between the three of us, we probably make about 12 feet total. You know what I mean? So, but, but. So I would stand on a little stand as as I was doing my business and then and, and when I was doing my arbitrage. And if I ever got really upset, I'd have to stand on my desk to yell. And I would have my you know, my coworkers turn to me and say, Jack, you're gonna have a heart attack. You you gotta get down. And I and because I would I literally if, if somebody took advantage of my broker, you know, there's pit etiquette involved. And and I wasn't gonna let it happen because if the broker was weak. They were going to take advantage of them. They, this is a, you know, they, we're talking about animals in that pit. All right. I mean, they smell blood. This is, there are no minor leagues. These guys are all major league ball players and they're throwing 100 mile an hour fastballs. So if they end up screwing your broker, now you're getting screwed. So either he stands up or you stand up. And that's really what it was all about. Yeah. It's, it's truly a dog eat dog world, right? Oh, yeah. So let me I gotta, was, I, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say some of the some of the problems. You know, remember it was an old it was a boys' club for so long um, before they really opened it up. These were little like country clubs, if you think about it. I mean, you know, when you think about the the history of these exchanges, the Board of Trade was the Irish exchange. Uh, the reason the Mercantile Exchange started was because they wouldn't let the old Jewish butter and egg traders into the Board of Trade, so they ended up creating their own exchange. So you had the sibling rivalry grow between these two exchanges in Chicago, and you know, but but the reality is that there. You're talking about a culture here in Chicago that'll trade anything that moves. Uh, and, and that's really, I think, the, the genesis of, of everything that kind of happened here in Chicago and why these markets took off here and not Kansas City or, or Minneapolis or, or L.A. or even New York, for that matter. You only had a handful of, of commodity markets really take off in New York. So walk. I got a million questions, but first, let's just deal with that clip. Walk somebody that doesn't understand what you're doing i mean you're telling me now you're trading nasdaq futures right walk us through right. exactly the mechanics of that transaction the arbitrage that you're using in the video what the fuck it means when you say 40 even on five like right. and 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 you know where the starting point is and where the ending point is for that transaction for somebody that doesn't know how clerks and arbitrage and all that stuff works 
Right now, when you trade any of these markets, they're a lot more orderly. They're a lot more efficient. So when you're looking at, a, say, a NASDAQ market, you know you can see a tight market. Uh, and a lot of that is because of the fact that they're electronic now. You've opened up uh, the world and given everybody access to them. But back then, uh, remember, I was the access or whoever was on the phone or whatever, whoever broker was brokering that trade had access to that flow. So what I was doing was we were watching the NASDAQ cash, and that NASDAQ cash was trading very, very wide back then. If you remember, that was that run in the late 90s that took that NASDAQ up to ridiculous levels. So what happened was the bid and offers became very wide. You could drive a truck right through them. And if you were doing arbitrage, and if you were doing arbitrage, the arbitrage was was very, very rich. So what we would do is we would actually put in bids, you know, 40 even versus, say, 45 even. So you were talking about 500 points sometimes wow. in the NASDAQ. All right. So, you know, I would literally go up 300 points. So when you saw me bidding 40 even it was a 40 even bid offered at 45 even in the nasdaq a 500 point wide market i had already given the customer the go go in the cash all right so now he's already sold the cash all right i'm doing now a buy program i'm buying futures and i'm selling cash right. because the, the spread is so wide he's already sold the cash I am waiting for my fill on the future side so that we can complete that arbitrage transaction. Right. That was that five lot. So that five lot was probably worth about $60,000 when I finally got it in. But that just gives you an idea of what that five lot meant. Because it's so funny. I, I'll talk to traders and they'll go, why are we getting so angry over a five lot? I go, it was worth 50 grand a clip. Right? And people don't understand that when they, when they look at the clip, but, but it, it's important to understand. So that's really what it was about. He had gone in the cash on in New York, so they've already gone through the dot system. They've already sent their, their lists. They've already sold their stock. Right. And, and I'm locking in the future side. And that and there's really what it's about. So now that is really a buy program. Now the inverse of that is if the if the cash starts to come off real hard, what I'll do is they'll buy the cash and I will sell the futures. All right, depending on how wide that gets. And that of course is is another type of program. That's actually the buy program. What I just described would be the sell program. So so it's the client that's on the phone then? It's it's the client or the partner, depending on how. Back then, remember, we were doing it almost as a partnership because these guys were, were including me because they wanted me to do exactly what I described. All a clerk will do is wait for that fill to come out of the pit. Right. I, on the other hand, was taking that risk because it was my operation and it was also my money on the line. And these guys treated me very well. They treated me like a partner. So if I made uh, Cooper Neff a lot of money, if I made or helped them make a lot of money, if I made one of the Nomura a lot of money, uh, they would reimburse me at the end of the month, not only with, with brokerage, but with like a big chunk. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it was it was very nice. These were very stand up stand up people. Uh, when did you leave your spot there at the Merck? I became president of Commerce Bank. I was doing a lot of different things at that time. Uh, they had me as a regular on CNBC. I was probably doing about three or four shots a week. It was me and Santelli. Santelli was working for Sanwa. I was working for Commerce Bank uh, and and Nico at the time. And uh, I was also on the board of directors of the exchange. Now, understand, we had had a, a an FBI investigation just a few years prior to this. So nobody wanted the press. Nobody wanted anybody on our floors knowing what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, and I, on the other hand, being 
being, you know, one of the younger guys. In fact, I was the youngest board member at the time at the CME. Uh, I was starting to, to think about demutualizing the exchange. I was talking to these older guys that wanted to retire. So the whole question of demutualization came up and how we were going to take that road. And I said, listen, we need exposure on these networks. We've got to allow them on our floor. CNBC had already contacted me. They're already going down. Back then it was FNN. Uh, they had already gone down to the to the New York Stock Exchange floor. So I brought that up to the board and they said, that's great. Okay, but you're going to do all the shots. And I said, <laughs> I said, okay. So I did everything. I did Bloomberg, CNN, FN, CNBC. I was doing them three, four times a day. It was ridiculous trying to run my own business, being on the board. And then finally, um, after a while, the, the people out in Frankfurt uh, said, Jack, listen, we'd like you, for you to be president. Um, it's a whole different responsibility. Can you do that? And I said, sure. So I did that. Uh, it was great. Built up their business, uh, did whatever I can. And then uh, Commerce Bank itself started to implode a little bit. And, and I just went off and started doing my own things after that. But so probably about 2002, 2003. Uh, and I was on the floor since... Um, let me think. I got right out of Loyola University here and uh, didn't even tell my folks, took all my classes at night the last year because my fraternity brothers were making $1,000 a week trading. And I thought to myself, <laughs> my God, that's amazing money. And uh, so that's what I did. And and the rest is history. Yeah. So how did you get your start then? How did you go from, well, from Loyola to a, on the floor? A, a, a fraternity brother that was actually on the floor. They were in the T-bills, and uh, and I actually went there. And it, the first day that I went on that floor, I I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Um, you know, coming from an immigrant household, I mean, I mean my, my my folks barely spoke English. You know, they came here as refugees in the fifties from from the Armenian quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. All right, and my grandparents are the only survivors from from the from the Turks from the genocide. So so you know, I, when I came down there, I was always trying to help my folks. I was looking for a way to be able to help them because, you know, that, that was kind of the thing that you're ingrained with. And I could smell money. It was amazing. <laughs> it, I mean, it was amazing. And the funniest part was that somebody introduced me to a gentleman who's an old Armenian gentleman. And he turned to me and he said, here, kid. And he gave me $20. And I said, I was thinking to myself, why is this guy giving me $20? And he goes, it's the most overpaid business in the world. Stick with it. And he, and he slapped me in the head. And I walked away. And I thought to myself, OK, you know what? This is something I better start looking at. Because you know, I was thinking about going to law school. I was thinking about doing everything else. And I took all my classes at night. Came down, was a runner, you know, started off right on the bottom, became a phone clerk, and that's when the gold pit was going absolutely insane. Uh, and uh, and then it just, uh, it just, it really gets into your blood, you know, between the camaraderie, between, um, and, and it really becomes, and Chris, I got to tell you, it's almost like a time warp. You know, you walk down onto that floor and then you walk off 30 years later uh, and, and you look in the mirror and you're thinking to yourself, how did that happen? Yeah. That was so fast. And, and that's kind of how it felt back then. Yeah, because everything's moving so quickly during every day, right? Well, you know, there's so much happening, uh, you know, and, and it, there's never there's never a loss for action, um, even when it was downtime. Uh, the, the pit itself would make its own fun. For example, we would have bag of bucks. Everybody would go around and put uh, a $20 bill. They'd write their initials or their symbol on there. Mine was GOP for, for my badge. And I would write 
29. I'd stick it into that paper bag and we would have a girl or the youngest person there, whoever it would be, boy or girl, they would actually go put their hand in there and pick out that bag and, and somebody would win $5,000, whatever it was in 20s. Um, but that's that's how we would that's how we'd make our time go by. Or we would bet, uh, you know, be, there would be food eating contests. We would see like a couple of these guys that would say, you know what, I, I could put down uh, 15 Whoppers and somebody would say, bullshit. All right. I, you know what? I'm bringing 15 Whoppers in tomorrow. You better not eat anything. They'd be like, OK, we would get around. There'd probably be a good 20, 50 grand between these brokers on whether this guy could eat those Whoppers or not, you know, without throwing up. So <laughs> it was as crazy as it sounds. Those were the kinds of things that would happen. And, but the the biggest thing on those floors were, were the pools. And I don't know if anyone's ever talked to you about those but the but the the actual square pools that we used to have for super bowl um and for these various events oh, Jesus. <clears throat> those pools got to be ridiculous in fact uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been i've been in a couple of pools where it was ten thousand dollars a square all right it was it was five hundred thousand dollars for for halftime and it was five hundred thousand dollars for final score and when you're talking about money like that that all of a sudden you know you, you lose you lose the whole, you know, the concept of money when you're on that floor. How do you so, pay out? How do you pay out a half a million dollar football pool win? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I hear you know what you want to know how? I'll tell you exactly how. First of all, you want to make sure that money is being held by somebody who's very safe and it's usually in a safety deposit box. When you go to pick it up, you pick it up with two police officers. And that's that's the best way to do it. Because I've, I've asked that very question. Unfortunately, I've never won that pool, but that is the way people do it. They will actually – they will pay a police officer to go with them. And I, right? guess, or a private I guess before everything was digital, you could move a half million dollars without the government knowing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, back then, I, you know, you could do just about anything. You could run onto a plane, you know, with, with two minutes left to go, if I remember correctly, you know, which is what I used to <laughs> Buy your ticket in cash, you know, exactly two minutes right. before the plane takes off, yep. Oh, no, but so, but but that's you know what again. It's it's really the camaraderie more than anything else. It, you, it's it was there was always something to do. Um, you know when I first got into the to the markets, I, I'll tell you the story. Uh, I had a guy from New York that came with me. He was a runner with me, and I said, I said, why do you come to Chicago? He goes, oh, because they all they had me doing bullshit out in New York. And I said, well, what were you doing out there? He said, oh, they made me stand by the elevator, and every time Norton Waldock came down off of the elevator, I had to run into the silver pit and buy silver. Now, let me explain that so people understand it. Norton Waldock was the broker for the Hunt brothers. He would come down into the silver pit and. And bid the silver market limit up every time he went down as the so as the market as the hunt brothers were trying to buy everything in sight so this guy's first job was to wait at the elevator bank for this broker to come off the elevator and once he started walking towards the floor he had instructions to immediately go buy 20 contracts of silver and I thought that that was the coolest job that I had ever heard of to start with. <laughs> you were, he was literally front-running he was literally front running because he knew exactly <laughs> what was going to happen. And he would run to the pit and actually do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that gives the expression a lot of meaning when you got some kid in a pair of Nikes just fucking booking it to the floor, like just trying to get there before the broker gets there, right? But, you know, I got to tell you, somebody actually here that same time when the Hunt brothers were, were cornering the market, they were they they were also trying to buy a lot of T bills. So they were here in Chicago, and there was a large gentleman uh, named Shields who played for the Bears. He was a tight end, and he was in the pit trading 
everything is local. The guy that was filling the Hunt Brothers uh, orders was a little short guy. He was a little taller than me, but real wide. And his badge was lefty. He was an older guy. And um, there's something in the pit we call pit etiquette. Now, let me explain this before I follow with the story. Pit etiquette is if I am bidding on something as a broker and you see me and now all of a sudden you steal a trade from, from a guy to my right and then you offer it to me. Now you've bought it. You've, you just stole my trade as a broker. All right. In other words, instead of directing right. traffic, saying trade with him, you've you've stole it. You got a better price and then you've caught to me. Now, if a broker sees you do that, you become invisible to that broker. He throws an invisible shroud over you in the pit. All right. So now he'll look right at you and look right at you and say, just checking. We did nothing. All right. It's a local before you learn. You can't do that. All right. So now in, I'm watching the T-bills trade and I see this guy Shields actually have a a trade stolen from him. All right. Or, or, or he steals a trade. Let me qualify this from Lefty, who's filling these brokers for the Hunt Brothers. All right. Shields, who's working in order, still trying to get out of his trade. Lefty runs over there, grabs him, pulls him out of the pit and gives him a left hook and knocks him out on the floor. Cards go flying, everything else. Security guards come running up, and they were like, I think his name was Schulte. They were like, Mr. Schulte, you know that's going to be a fine. He pulled out a roll of $100 bills like I had never seen, threw about $2,000 on this guy's body, turned to the security guards and says, when he gets up, I'm going to hit him again. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, even better. Great, I got it, and that's that was my first indoctrination into onto the floors. But but that was early. If you do that now, you know it's it's you know you get called up on charges. It's it's fifty thousand dollars. It's expunged from you know you're off the floor. You can't do that anymore. But that was the difference between working where it was a boys' club, uh, you know, and 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 now where it's a it's a demutualized sixty billion dollar exchange. Yeah, that was literally the definition of a busted trade. There, that's exactly it's right. A, <laughs> Back now, you know, that they just they take it out of your account, you know, mechanically, digitally, and you never see it again. There you got you caught two punches to the face. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And you know what? It was funny because, you know, that guy who's probably a good foot and a half taller than Lefty never, ever stole another trade from him again. From oh, what yeah. I can remember, you know, because all it does, it, you know, it doesn't matter how big you are. Uh, you know, the reality is that if you're doing something wrong and you know it, you're going to get caught. You know what? It's, if you're unethical on that floor, you end up with a, a, a reputation, or at least you used to. It's obviously the floors aren't there anymore. But and if you and if you lost your reputation, Chris, all right, you couldn't do shit. Right. You could do shit. You could. You know what? If somebody was was offering the market, you could bid through them, and they would not even look. They'd ignore you. So would the rest of the pit. <laughs> No, it's it's and and that's I think that the whole self policing, the the pit etiquette, uh, was always great. It kept us, it kept everything in line. There was always a king or two within the pits, right? right? That, that kept everything in line. Right. And if you didn't, and if you didn't keep it in line, they would bury you. All right. And what I mean by that is, if you put on a trade, everybody would gang up on you and offer the market down if you were long. All oh, right. Man. And, Oh, yeah. And they would just they would try to fuck you. If you if they saw you doing something specifically that was malicious, right. you would see now and I'll flip it around for you when a broker was stuck on something. Right. right? And if he was a good broker. All right. Say he's uh, Smith Barney gave him an order for 200 uh, and he did a buy instead of a sell. Well, now he's got to do 400 contracts. Good brokers, good locals that know that broker will actually help him. 
All right, they will help take him out of those. They won't move or bid and offer the market down. And that broker will remember that. All right, so when the first time he gets a large order, he's going to be looking right at these guys and say, "Here you go." So it was there was a lot of etiquette involved, um, you know. And and I think you know that's it, it's that's part of the story that people don't understand. They they, they just see this this wild you know chaotic craziness uh, and think that that's the way it was. No, there, there was a lot of you know a lot of rational thinking going on at that time. Yeah, I had said to John Najarian at one point something to the effect of, "Oh well, if you fucked up on the floor." Of course, you know, speaking completely out of school, having never traded in person once in my life. But uh, I had said to him, hey, you know, if you fuck up on the floor, that's it. You got to eat it. And he corrected me. He said, no, that's not what would happen. And he said exactly what you just said. He said, if somebody got stuck with something, guys would come in and they would help him out. Or if guys went bust, you know, guys would throw together some money for him and, and try to help him get back on his feet. If it was somebody that had, like you said, a good reputation, I guess a good rapport with everybody. That's very important. Your reputation is everything. And uh, look, it happened to me. Uh, you know what? There was a time where I needed some help, and sure enough, people came running out of the woodwork. People that I didn't even know. What and I remember that. You know, I got stuck on something. It was about $150,000 back when, the, you know, $150,000 was a lot of money. You know, not that it isn't now. But uh, but this was just doing brokerage at the time. So I was, you know, this was a $10 trade that I was going to make $10 in brokerage on, and it, and it literally cost me a buck and a half. Um, my broker, uh, everybody came to my aid. Uh, they helped me do whatever I could. Some of them even send more business my way. Even even the customer, when he found out, because I didn't want the customer to know at that time what was happening, um, he actually started doing more business through me just to make sure that I made that money back. Um, but, you know, there are too often people, uh, the customer ends up paying for it in, in the wrong way. Right. And, 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 and let me explain that so the people that are listening can understand that. Um, there, unfortunately, there are a lot of unethical people in the world. So if there is a problem, what would happen is that they would steal off of their customer deck right, to make sure that it was right. So it didn't matter. I don't care if you're a stockbroker, if you're a commodity broker, it happens in every business. All right. Um, our business being a little different because the, the fact is that being so heavy on your reputation and you know it's such a it's such a personal type of thing or was a very personal thing that these guys w would look and they could see the crisis developing now the flip side of that and this is important if you were an asshole all right they would literally try to bury you and I've seen that happen a couple of times where somebody was stuck and somebody said, who is it? And they said, it's so-and-so. And they said, great. And they offered the market <laughs> down. Yeah. And, and you know what? And I thought to myself, well, thank God that ain't me because you know what? That's And that's, it's little things like that that probably mean more um, you know, on the floor and then off the floor, because then remember, these are the same people that you're, you know, you're dealing, you're meeting your best friends on the floor. You're, you're, you're socializing with them. You know, I had 70 people at my bachelor party in 1986. They were all from the S and P pit. Right. All right. And I mean, that, that, that gives you an idea. And I still hang out with these guys. I, we go to dinner together and, and there's my, my old brokers, my old, you know, my old coworkers, my old friends that were from the pit when we were scalping. I still see them. I still see them all the time. The last podcast guest that I had on a couple days ago did 15 years in prison, and he was telling me about what the ethos is like in prison. And to some extent, there's some similarities, you know, with <laughs> really, like you said, though, you know, there, there's kind of an old guy on the block, right, that that, you know, resolves conflicts and that people go to. And a lot of it has to do with reputation and a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, a lot of these old school kind of uh you know, you, you, you learn the hard way 
And and there's something to be said for that. Uh, you know what? It's something that you need. And in fact, I, there's a one of my first stories. I, I traded in the pit for a while, and there was a, a gentleman named um, Bing Sung. Bing was a, the a professor at Harvard Endowment uh, and, and ran Harvard Endowment for a while. Then then he took me under his wing, and I was his personal assistant and trader on the floor. Uh, and then I went into the pit. He goes, Jack, I want you to go into the pit and start trading for yourself. So I did. And I started trading, and there was an old guy named Sam Shanker. And he stood right next to me. And Sam would always ask me about the markets. And he was, he was in his 60s at the time. And I, you know, I, and, and I was trading one lots, and I bought one market went down. I bought another one. Market went down. I bought another one. He goes, he goes, hey, what are you doing? And I go, well, I go, you know, I'm I'm averaging down. He goes, he goes, are you Jewish kid? I go, well, no, I'm Armenian. He goes, let me tell you, let me put it this way, averaging down killed more Armenian traders than the Turks. Do you get that? And I go, I go, okay, I get it. All right. So, so his point to me was, quit averaging down, you idiot. All right. You're at, you're adding to a loser. All right. So. He would always stand right by me, and he'd see me. And if it went against me, he goes, get out. So now the first three weeks of trading, I would have this old man right by me giving me those little nuances of the pit. It's almost like that old guy at a ballpark that's smoking the cigar behind you that's talking about moving the runner along, you know, and, and little the nuances of the game as you're, as you're listening to him yeah. and he's telling you. But but it, it's so so necessary. And I think everybody needs that. You need a mentor. I don't care in, in whatever business, but especially when you're on the floor because it was – and I said this earlier, you know, it's not like you can go someplace and – learn to trade and then go into the pit and trade you know you're 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 thrust right in to the major leagues again these guys are they're they're they've got they've got you know they're smelling blood when they see a new local the the rule of thumb is if a local can last for six months all right usually he'll make it because those first six months they'll try to chew them up and spit them out well, and there's something to be said too. Like if you trade online, or you're a, a lot of my listeners are day traders or active traders at least. There's something to be said for getting your mistakes corrected in person by somebody like that. Literally having somebody stand next to your desk and be like, "Fucking idiot, what are you doing?" Versus making the same mistake over and over and over and getting bludgeoned in the face. I mean, I can't tell you how many years, Jack, it took me to learn something simple like. Don't always average down and cut your losers, right? Which seems like a very simple risk management strategy, trading 101. But, you know, I endured years of pain and misery trying to learn that on my own because I didn't have somebody next to me to fucking strangle me and tell me, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That, you know what? You're so right. And and I see people do that same mistake over and over again. I talk to them about it. Um, but see, the reality is, though, remember, when you're in the pit, uh, it, it's not one-dimensional. When you're on a screen and you're trading on the screen, it's really one-dimensional. When you're in the pit, you're getting an edge. That that edge has now gone from a geographical edge, which you know meant if you're standing next to a broker and a broker says, what's your market? And you turn to him and say, I'm a 60 bid. I'm offered at 70. Well, if you're buying 60s, now you have the edge. You're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to offer the market at 70 and you're going to make a couple of ticks or you're going to see 60s trading and you're going to sell those 60s and you're going to scratch that trade. When you're a local, when you're a, tr- when you're a member of the exchange, that scratch doesn't cost you much. Right. Whereas 
Whereas if you're a bro, where a customer trading for, on a screen, it's going to cost you a few dollars. So, but that that's that that edge though, Chris, is really the key. That's really what made the floor so much different, so lucrative for so long. So that geographic edge has now become more of a technological edge. You know, uh, you know who, who's got a, a better system? In fact, some of these uh, you know algorithms. And then you got predatory algorithms. And now I've got I just talked to somebody who's creating an algorithm that's going to prey on the predatory algorithms. And you know what? Where does it stop? You know, eventually, eventually you got to get back to just you know you and i trading these markets trying to figure out price discovery yeah the geographical edge now is who can move their microwave tower you know a mile closer to the exchange so they can get a hundredth of a millisecond and that's this is literally what these hft firms do i mean they, yeah, it's they, the, the they, race to zero it's, it's the, i call it the race to zero they they are trying to get to zero all right. And, and we, we, I always laugh about it with them because I don't think, you know, you can't get any faster. You're going to get to the point where you can't get any faster unless you're just unless you're looking at the algorithm going in. Right. And if you're doing and if you're doing that, then that's illegal. Yeah. But it's crazy because then, you know, in the open outcry days, you're talking about a literal geographic advantage of hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, depending on where you were across the country. And and, you know, your your edge was. 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, maybe a minute. I don't know what it was, but you know, now, now it's all we're talking about hundredths or millionths of a second, right? Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, you've got these computers that, of course, can act a lot quicker than any human being. You know, back, back when I was doing the Arab, I was doing Arab and S&Ps. I was doing it in, in the NASDAQ behind me, and I was doing it in the Russell and Midcap. So uh, what, I, what I would do is I would swing around and I would listen to these other markets. So I could tell if, if the S&Ps were getting hit and if there was a big market that came into the NASDAQ, NASDAQ, I'd immediately swing there and put in an order without even thinking, knowing that, it, you know, if the market were going crazy there, they might just, they, they just might come to me real quick. And if they do, then that's very lucrative. I did that a couple of times for a customer and the customer took out twice as much as he would normally have done on the ARB. Uh, so, you know, and, and then the, that's when, those are the times where the customer will come back to you and say, here's a $25,000 at the end of the month. Thank you very much. You know, I, we had a great month, you know, you did great. Here's an extra 50, <laughs> you know, th those were, those were the good old days, Chris. All right. Cause you know, what? You, you, you were taking, you were taking risk, but you were getting compensated for that risk. Yeah, sure. When, uh, when I spoke to Pete Nigerian some months back, I know you're trying to be PC probably, but he said on the bag of bucks, which you were mentioning earlier, he said it was always the best looking woman in the pit. He said, okay, you, said right. you said it was, you said it was a, sometimes we would have a, a you know, a, a, a woman do it, or maybe, you know, the youngest guy on the floor. That was not the story I got from Pete and Jerry. Pete was like, well, he said, it was Pete, the, Pete. he always found the best looking woman. Pete is right. Uh, you know what? I, I, I will, I will stand corrected here. Pete is right. <laughs> that, that is, that is the way they, they, they used to do it. Um, and, and chances are that was always somebody there was, remember there weren't many women on the floor back then. This is, we're talking about a time. Uh, even in the 90s where, you know, you, you had a handful of women and, and, and you know, ironically, you're, some of your biggest traders in the world on the floor in the euro dollars were women. Uh, and, and I found that to be absolutely fascinating, you know, the way they were able to handle the, the, the stress put on these enormous positions. But but yes, we would have the, the prettiest girl uh, come down and, and usually she would put and you know what would happen is normally she would probably get five or 10 percent of the of, right, of the money. Right. <laughs> But uh, and yeah, you know what? It was it was a lot of fun that then, of course, uh, you know what we used to also, there was a, a time where uh, we would all go to Vegas together for for Super Bowl. And, and that got to be very, very crazy. Let's hear uh, about that. 
Well, you know, we, there was a time where everybody, because of these pools, you know, the the, the thousand, you know, the ten thousand dollars square, five thousand dollars square, you know, we people started getting a little worried. Uh, you know, only because the police were starting to get involved. FBI was asking questions. Obviously, it's you know, there's a lot of money involved. You know, traders think they're invincible. So the idea was, let's just go out to Vegas. All right, and do that. So we, there was there was a time for a good five years. We, they would literally, you know, take the entire wing of the desert in, uh, and I would go there, and I would they'd fly me out. A lot of these brokers or traders felt that they had to treat me right for one reason or another, or I would go out, and we would all take out some credit lines. But the difference between the credit lines was staggering. I would take out a, a five or a ten thousand dollar credit line. Uh, some of these guys would take out quarter million dollar credit lines, and you know, for for, the, for those of you that play craps, you know, I mean, I would go to the crap table with them and I'd put out maybe, you know, you know, five hundred to a thousand dollars. They would put out twenty thousand dollars on the table. I turned to them and I go, guys, I can't I can't throw these dice. All right. I can't throw these dice now because of the you know, now you got way too much money that, that, that you got on the table. Between the pools and some of these other things, the, the amounts of money became staggering. So, you know, the, the 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 people in the pit, and I was on the board of directors. I was one of the people that recommended it. I said, guys, let's just go to Vegas. And uh, so we ended up doing that. We would have about 50 to 100 people on a plane or between one or two planes over the course of, you know, of a Friday evening, afternoon, uh, and all end up at the same hotel, usually the Desert Inn back then. Uh, then it became Bally's. Then it became Bellagio for a while. But, you know, what we would do is it, it was just it was just craziness and what i mean by that it was you know remember we're talking about egos we're talking about you know, traders that that have made a lot of money at a very young age so you know it's who can drink more who can spend more money and gamble <laughs> more i mean it really became a contest so and then it became a contest of who could just be more you know belligerent with money so i would i would literally come in at five in the morning and one of these big traders that had these huge credit lines would grab me and put me put me right down on, on, a, on a blackjack table and say sit right here and they would wait for the prettiest girl who was usually a professional walking through the walking through the uh, through the uh, casino, they would ask her to sit at the table and they would put $20,000 in front of each of us and say, start playing. So we would start playing and they want, and they would bet amongst themselves to see who was going to win. Oh, real uh, derivatives, huh? Real life derivatives. I got, I got to tell you, it's, it was absolutely crazy. So finally, you know, I mean, I, and I was not shy playing with people's money. So I play $1,000, $2,000 a hand. This girl is playing $50 a hand. Well, she thinks she's going to keep this money. You know right. what I mean? So so eventually, you know, she ends up with, you know, maybe 15000 in front of her. I end up with 45000 in front of me. All right. These guys, I turn, I go, what was the bet they go five bucks <laughs> you know what it was literally like a, a trading places type of bet they bet five dollars all right but they put twenty thousand dollars in front of each of us to see what who was going to win that five bucks yeah it's the opposite of leverage it's it's deleveraged derivatives it's uh you know <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it was it was a, a lot of fun. Again, you know those those days are fun, but uh, but you know you grow up. It's like uh, living in a fraternity house. Eventually, you got to move out. Right. You know, and and that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I think everybody goes through that too, and I think we all have those friends that never. I don't know. I'm just I, I'm always very thankful that I reached that spot where I, I remember I was like 27. I think I sat myself down. I had to talk with myself. Said, all right, time to get your shit together a little bit, and. Uh, I'm glad that I glad that I did that because I know a lot of people that they never they never left the fraternity house. 
you know? Yeah. You, you know what? Well, for me, I got to tell you, it's, it's my wife. Uh, you know what? If it wasn't for her and, and God bless her, I'd probably be I feel like I'd probably be dead by now. You know what I mean? Between, you know, between all the, the drugs and the craziness and everything else that was going on on the floor, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I'll admit it. It was it was absolutely ridiculous. This is before we knew cocaine could hurt you. You know what I mean? And we before we knew, uh, you, know, you know, I mean. It was it was just insane, uh, and and like I say, all of that you know eventually. And I know friends that that still feel the repercussions from that. They've gone through three or four different marriages. They've, you know, um, a, a lot of them have just are still living with with some of the with some of the legacy problems that come from that lifestyle after right. a while. Uh, but again, for me, I, and I think I had that same talk that you had with yourself. And fortunately, I had it with my wife because I got married back then, and and she really straightened my ass out. Uh, thank God for her. <laughs> yeah well uh happy anniversary you know on behalf of uh, all the listeners too and 39 years is it now well it's actually 34 and we lived together for five so I, I put 39 out there but it's really 34 oh all right okay got it well appreciate you yeah. coming clean on that otherwise <laughs> it could change the whole course of the conversation <laughs> did you uh did you know the guys in the cattle pit when you were down there because one of the things if you guys watch this documentary they follow the guys in the cattle pit and they look like, you know, you're talking earlier, kind of like an older, more uh, etiquette driven crowd where everybody knew each other. Did, did you know those guys or no? Oh, yeah. Uh, in fact, I did. I did business in the cattle. The cattle pit was the, the old country club. So remember, it started. We, we started with the meats. All right. So the, the old Merck was the old butter and egg exchange. But the real the, the real heart and soul became when they started trading pork bellies, live cattle. And that was in the 60s. Okay. Um, and, and, and those are the traders, the original traders. So a lot of them, if you look back on that documentary, have gold badges. Those gold badges are the full memberships. There were only about 400 of those put out. Then then everybody else got different types of badges. You were able to get a secondary badge that let you just trade uh, financial products. That was called the IMM market. Then you could trade what we call the IOM market, uh, which was the index and option market, which allowed you to trade these indices, the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the rest of it. But the early guys, and these guys, by the way, got, got very, very well paid when we demutualized the exchange. Each one of those gold badges got 18,000 shares of CME stock, which is now split five times. So, uh, you know, they've, they, they've, you know they, did, they did very well. And that's really the, the whole, I think, the genesis of demutualizing the exchange, because these older members that were trading back then had been around for 30 years making markets, uh, and they were ready to retire. So we were trying to figure out how best to be able to, to, to get them out. Jack, I'm interested in your perspective just kind of on the world in general, too. I mean, we talked a couple of minutes ago about how the, you know, coming up in the pit is it's a bit of an old school environment. And certainly, I mean, look, I'm, I'm only 38, but I feel like over the last and I don't know if it's just me getting older, but I feel like over the last decade or two, not that we're getting soft as a nation, but that um that I, I I feel like we may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit in how we are evolving and there's a lot of great things happening in our country uh you know which and you were there right you were at the epicenter of capitalism at the bastion of the United States of America right in Chicago um but I, I'd be interested in your take on macro like monetary policy like right now we've printed trillions of dollars. Oh, just over the last couple of months, whether or not you see consequences with that happening and and just the state of the nation, as you've seen it change over the last uh, couple of decades heading into this election. 
Well, let's start with with monetary. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start with with a story. You know, back in, in the 30s, say 1932, soybeans were trading for about 31 cents a bushel. All right. And you can go back and look at, at, at history and this will tell you. By 1952, they were trading over four dollars a bushel. Now, what happened during that time? Uh, well, we inflated our way out of a depression. We inflated our way out of a world war. We debased the U.S. currency. Uh, much of what happened during that period is happening now. Now, it's happening very slowly, but we're watching a, a, a slow debasing of the U.S. currency. The question is, are they going to let it continue? And are we, more importantly, are we going to see inflation take off, right. which is really going to be the killer? All right. Um, I'm, I'm worried that, that there's, there's way too much emphasis being put on the Federal Reserve all right, and, and what the Fed is doing. Um, I'm more of a free market guy. Uh, I always have been, Chris. And I think when the more the government gets involved and manipulates the market, the, the harder it's going to be for us to go out there and find real price discovery and, and real value. Right. Um, and, and, and that, for me, is one of the pitfalls of where we are with monetary policy. On the political front, um, I, came, you know, I came to age as a Reagan Republican. Uh, you know what I mean? And it was at a time where, you know, remember, I was in college during Jimmy Carter's. I was in high school during Jimmy Carter's days. And we're looking at, you know, ridiculous inflation, uh, you know, 17 percent interest rates. It was it was it was ridiculous. It was kind of crazy. I didn't think I was going to get a job. Uh, and, and you know, what happened was then there was this guy, Ronald Reagan, that came around and, you know, started talking about free markets. And look, it, he wasn't perfect. There was I mean, remember, I was in college. I was a bit of a, a you know, an ideologue. I had my, you know, you know, I, I listened to my liberal music in college, just like everybody else does. But but there was something that resonated with with the the whole idea of free markets and a market driven solution. Uh, and and when I got down to the exchange, that's really what I saw happening. And more importantly, for for people like me that are first generation that come, you know that, that were born in this country with immigrant parents, we saw this as a way of social mobility, of being able to move. It was it was the great equalizer. Right. It allowed us to do this. That's what's changed. It feels as if, you know, that, that, that whole idea of, of having a, 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 an environment that, uh, that embraces capitalism and embraces social mobility is, is no longer there. Um, people are now being looked down upon for success. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that to me is, is really the, the, the if, if there's ever really been a switch uh, you know, in people's thinking, I think that's what it is. Now, where did it come from? I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the university systems. I've got friends that that are that are absolutely adamant about that. I, on the other hand, think you know a lot of it is these people that are just complaining to me about that. If their attitudes were maybe a little softer or a little different, you know, these are the same people that will tell a sexist joke, all right, amongst men. And I will sit there and go, guys, I got a daughter, all right, please stop. You know, and and you know, but there, there's still a thinking out there. Uh, you know, and maybe it's the it's maybe being a middle-aged old white man now. I I kind of see it the way I should because I'm watching other people my age saying certain things and doing certain things. I'm going, okay, you know what? Now that's wrong. And you know, so 
there's a part of me that 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 says what's happening right now is absolutely necessary all right for certain things on the other hand i don't want to be throwing out the idea of free market american style capitalism right. all right for and embrace what is you know a horror show and for people that don't understand this i had relatives that lived in soviet armenia that would wait in line for everything bread coffee toilet paper shoes and you know these are the that's what socialism and communism does all right it lowers everything to the lowest lowest common denominator and if we continue down that path chris that's where i worry for my children and my grandchildren yeah and i always say that i think so much of the so much of the appeal of socialism and communism to people that don't understand it is is a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding a of history and b of how uh, of what systems were in place to get us to the quality of life that we're at now i think people that come out and criticize capitalism even the crony capitalism that we have in the us courtesy of the central banks even that i think people that come out and rail against it um, do so from a position of a certain quality of life that I don't think even even people that are you know below the poverty line still have still have ascertained a quality of life that is above you know where many nations that suffered through communism, socialism, Marxism uh, had their quality of life. So and and even more annoying, of course, is the people who are you know silver spoon children that have you know have had everything handed to them that are out criticizing the system but i mean how much of how much of the embrace that you're seeing of the uh, uh of these ideologies you think comes from just a misunderstanding i mean do you think people understand what their quality of life would be like under socialism versus the starbucks and the iphone that they use today uh, here here's a good example of what you're saying right now all right, there was a study that came out, What I think that the AP put out last week, that said that 25% of the millennials don't know why the Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Right. That, that was staggering to me. That was absolutely staggering to me. And, you know, for it's thing we have lost the sense of history. And now we're trying to change history. Here in Chicago, we're actually, they're going to change the history curriculum. And they're dropping history class from the, the state curriculum. I, now you know what I, I find. I'm 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 shocked by that. I'm literally shocked by that. All right, that we're not going to be able to change history. History is what it is. All right, it was written by people that won their wars. That's just it's as plain and simple as that. And you know what? We're not going to be able to go out there and. Reality is this: unless people learn, they're going to continue to fall into them. Right. You know. The people that you're talking about, those that are out there that are protesting, do not have a sense of history. No, they they don't. don't know what the Soviet Union was about and what happened and how many people, that 60 million people were killed by Mao Zedong, all right? Then another 40 million were killed and displaced by Stalin. They don't even know those stories. They don't hear those stories, all right? You know, they just hear about this wonderful ideology where everybody gets everything and everything belongs to everybody and they're going to live in their communes. Well, that's great. They can go to Oregon and they can live in a commune and they can have that lifestyle if they want. But you know what? That's not what this country should be. 
Yeah, I agree. And even as somebody that I think, you know, I have a rudimentary understanding of history. I don't think I'm completely clueless, but I'm definitely not a history buff. I went back and watched uh, Netflix has this great documentary called World War II in Color. And I watched the whole thing like a month or two ago. And, you know, I knew the the, the basics of World War II, right? Not, you know, I was born in 1982, so I, I obviously didn't live through it. And uh, I didn't have any immediate family members that uh, that were actively involved in World War II, so I didn't get any stories firsthand. And I went back and watched it and, uh, you know, talk about really having this realization that the entire world was in a massive clusterfuck, the likes of which, you know, I could not even wrap my head around. And you see how complex and how long and how drawn out it was and how many people it affected. And and really, it was playing for keeps on a global scale, how close the, uh, you know, the world came to heading in a very different direction. And just watching, you know, four or five hours of this of this documentary, of this series, just brought me so much closer to it and said, holy shit, like, talk about, talk about the world coming together, talk about dodging uh, a bullet, who the hell knows where we would be, and I think, God, I gotta think it's so important for people to try to understand that, um, yeah. because otherwise we're condemned to repeat it, right, is that what happened? Well, well, that's what, well, the Holocaust itself was repeating it, you know, I, look, I come from a, you know, for me, history is very important only because my family is, it comes from history, uh, you know, we're, we lost 75 members of the family, all right, the, the, the Turks came in and killed 75, my grandfather walked from what is right now eastern Anatolia down to Jerusalem, all right, walked, and he made it, and he was the only one that made it out of his family. Um, they, it, the, as he as he tried to go back, they said, "Don't go back. Uh, you know, your sisters are laying on the side of the road." So, you know, then my, I mean, we've got a story. I've got a story like that from each one of my grandparents. That's how they ended up in the old city of Jerusalem. And then when when they came out and said that they this was a genocide, there was a, there was a gentleman, you know, named Lemkin that went to the United Nations uh, who, who said this is called a genocide. They did the exact same thing all right and the and the words that hitler used and this is very important for people to understand was after all who remembers the annihilation of the armenians and you know chris i just gotta just say one more thing about this you know it's happening today too what's happening with erdogan in turkey what's happening in azerbaijan right now is exactly the same thing they're trying to cleanse the armenian population out of what is western azerbaijan which has been armenian for about 2000 years and it's 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 that type of action that for me is still a sense of history that's being lived on a daily basis uh, i don't know it's very uh, i mean when you hear from somebody like yourself that y- your family was that close to it and you know you guys are living it it, uh, it definitely brings a different sense of meaning to it than opening up the paper and reading the headlines or going on. Well, 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 well Chris, let me, let me follow it up with one more line. My, my, my late grandfather, you know, used to say before he passed away, and so did my dad before he passed away, 
God bless America. This is the greatest country. We don't have to run. We don't have to. And, and I, used, I used to listen to him say that. And, and I used to kind of laugh. I used to think, oh, come on, why would we run? But, you know, then you realize as you get older that they had to literally run. My grandfather ran from village to village he, and they for their lives. So, you know what? I, I got to tell you, I am probably a personification of, of the American dream. This is what my parents wanted for my sisters and I, and this is exactly what happened. And you know what? It's alive and well today, so that's good. And I think you're uh, you're certainly honoring your ancestors, which is uh, uh, exceptionally, you know, that probably the most important thing, right? You honor the sacrifices of those who came before you. Well, you know what? There's a there's a line out of a system of a down song called, uh, you know, there when when. When, when when angels deserve to die, all right? And that's really what it was all about. If, it's, it's, it's a self-righteous suicide is what it was all about. If you had Jack Berugin quoting System of a Down on your Vegas ticket at plus 1,500, you can cash that ticket. That was a no, no, <laughs> no, Nobody thought that one was coming in, Jack. <laughs> Wait, you know what? I, I can go with System of a Down. I can go with Five Finger Death Punch. I can go with all my good heavy metal bands. I'm, oh, I'm, my God. I love it. All right, Jack. Well, listen, man, do me a favor. Will you come back on like uh, every couple months and shoot the shit with me? Absolutely. This was absolutely a great time. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. And I appreciate you getting up bright and early on a on a Saturday to uh, to take care of this and, and chat for a little bit. And I know my listeners appreciate it, too. And uh, thanks for everything. Thanks for all your great stories and look forward to uh, catching up again in the future, brother. That sounds great, Chris. Thank you. All right, Jack. Take care. That was Jack Berugin, <clears throat> the legend. Man, holy shit. Most people tell me they listen to my podcast at 2x speed. You're going to have to go back and listen to that one at half speed. Because, uh, man, and I can't wait to have him back on already. I'm going to be uh, more prepared with far more questions I have for him. I remember I, there was a question about the cattle pit I wanted to ask him earlier, and I forgot. Which was like, hey, do these guys even give a fuck what they're trading? He was like, oh, you know, pork belly, soybeans, eggs, cocoa, whatever. I said, yeah, I felt like asking him, hey, do these guys even care? Because I, I remember the Nigerians telling me back in the day, like, yeah, a lot of these guys, they didn't even know what they were trading. They were just in there to buy them at one and sell them at two. So, all right, fools, have a great weekend. I am out for now. I'll be back next week. Peace.